Welcome to You Might Relate, a podcast where we take relationships and mental health to the next level. I am Stacy Heaps, a licensed clinical social worker, and I have been practicing therapy for the last 15 years. There are counseling concepts and stories that I am excited to share. When we know better, we do better. Together, let's get to a place of radical acceptance of where we are while improving relationships and tackling life's transitions, one therapy concept and one story at a time. So let's get started to see if you relate. Welcome to You Might Relate. I am so glad you're all here listening today. My guest today is Emily Fonsbeck. She is a registered dietitian who started her career working at a weight loss resort here in Southern Utah. And then that experience prompted her to learn more about intuitive eating, which I'm sure some of you have heard about intuitive eating and eating disorders and weight-inclusive treatment options. As she learned more about that, then she transitioned into her private practice in 2011, working primarily with clients who were struggling with body image and disordered eating. But now she moved away from me and she lives in Cash Valley, which is just the most beautiful valley with her husband and four kids. So what did I miss, Emily? Did I miss anything in there? Oh, I think that's about as interesting as it gets. Yep. (laughs) You do a lot of work. And we actually, when you lived here, we taught some classes together. And that was such a fun time. I get asked quite often, are you guys going to do those classes? And I'm like, oh, I wish we could. I wish she was down here. So we think how we can collaborate and offer that to people. Online. We should definitely think about that. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so let's get started, Emily. So since you're a registered dietitian and you work with people, you know, we want people to be healthy. We want people to just be aware of what they're putting in their body. But at the same time, this is the concept that I found that was so interesting. Can you explain the concept of a person's relationship with food and how it can impact their overall well-being, including, this is the important part to me, including their relationships with other human beings. Yeah, big topic. I'm sure we can kind of unpack this little by little today because there's, I definitely think there's lots of moving parts here. I guess first, the, the concept of having a relationship with food, we all relate to food in some way. Maybe it's neutral, maybe it's positive, maybe it's negative, but We all relate to food in some way. And in that way, we have a relationship with it. And it is possible for us to assess if someone has a healthy or helpful or positive relationship with food or a negative relationship with food that is dysfunctional or disordered. So I would say that a healthy relationship with food is one that includes balance and flexibility. There's a certain amount of ease to eating while also being proactive and intentional about meeting your needs. A big part of that healthy relationship with food would be a connection with your body and an understanding of what it's communicating to you and then to be able to actually respond to that appropriately. And that's a bit of a practice for people. I find that most people are pretty disconnected from their bodies, but that is a really, really important part of having a healthy relationship with food is also having a connection and a healthy relationship with your body. Okay, can I stop you there for just a second? What causes us to be disconnected from our body, do you think? Well, I think we're socialized in large part to be disconnected, especially in our appearance-obsessed culture. 
I would say definitely the, the current nutrition climate that kind of teaches us to relate to food in a way that is is disconnecting from our bodies. Like we need a lot of outside rules or a lot of outside trackers. Uh-huh. I think we're to be distrustful of what our body might be telling us, well, you're not really hungry. You're probably just thirsty. Like we hear that all the time. And so when we're getting that messaging over and over again, I think it really just causes us to to think that it's better actually and and more effective to disconnect from our bodies and just trust something else to tell us how to take care of ourselves. Now on a deeper level, I do see that people with histories of trauma or other mental health challenges in general can definitely contribute. But I think overall, I would say that we're just taught that. We're just taught that it's it's probably better to disconnect and be distrustful, you know? So it's kind of what you're saying is we're letting other people be an authority over our body instead of listening to our body. Yeah. Huh. I've never thought about it like that. And what anyone's going to find out, like I, I feel really confident saying this, what anyone's going to find out if they come back home to their body, if they connect back to their body, is that there's so much wisdom and knowledge and discernment and understanding that you can get from being connected to your body. And that goes for food and probably other things too but definitely for food. You're going to be better able to take care of yourself in the way your body needs to be taken care of if you're actually connected to it and letting it be part of the decision-making process when it comes to self-care. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that. Can you hear my voice? I'm a little, you guys, I'm a little under the weather today, or at least my voice is. I don't feel like I'm under the weather. Okay, so then tie that in. How does that impact our relationship with other people? Well, it will. I see that all of the time. I think maybe just big picture, when we fight food, it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of focus away from maybe other things, probably other other relationships for sure, a lot of other things that might be going on in our life. We know as humans, we only have a finite amount of energy and focus to put on things. And so when we're putting a lot of energy into fighting food, in a dysfunctional relationship, maybe that it's, you know, it's taking a lot from us in that we're maybe obsessing about it or being really worried about it. We're fearful or distrustful or whatever it might be. However, the behaviors are playing out. It takes a lot of energy to be in that kind of relationship. And so it just spreads us pretty thin for anything else. I would also say that we tend to be pretty, I would say, distracted or lack presence when we're disconnected from ourselves, right? And so it's really hard to be present or connected with other people, uh, especially, you know, and I would also say that if you're, if you are fighting food, there could be a feeling of lack of control or maybe a really neat, big need for control. And that could show up in other relationships. I like to say that the way you f- do food is the way you do life. I've seen that over and over and over again when I work with people. It's not just food that's dysfunctional. A lot of the things that they're doing with food is is kind of how they're showing up in other areas of their life too. And that could be relationships for sure. And so I've worked with enough people to know that food can give you a lot of insight into what's working for you and what's not working for you, you know? Hey, that quote that you just barely said, the way you do food is the way you do life. That's why I'm like, I want to talk to her about, I mean, we've talked before, but I just, That concept is so fascinating to me. So Mm -hmm. I want to dive deeper. Can you maybe give an example? Because some people are eating a lot 
so they're disconnecting. And then other people are really worried that they are eating too much, but they're hardly eating. And yes. so when you say how you do life or how you do food is how you do life, mm-hmm. how does that work with those two scenarios? Well, exactly that. Most of us have been taught to relate to food in extreme ways. We don't know anything else. We don't know what nuances or gray area or middle ground or integration or compromise or trust. We don't know what that looks like with food. And it's possible that we don't know what that looks like outside of food either. So using food as the teacher here, right? Using food Ah. as symbolism, we can see that we're just, we've just learned to relate to food in, in extreme ways. And it could show up differently for different people. Like you, you mentioned I would say that disordered eating is a spectrum and there's lots of places that you can land on that spectrum. And there's lots of levels of severity that you can be at on that spectrum, but essentially it's all the same. We call disordered eating. Well, I would say actually more correctly, we talk, we call eating disorders, emotional disorders. But if I'm talking about a spectrum, I would include disordered eating in that where, wherever you fall on that spectrum, typically Eating disorders are an attempt, disordered eating. Those behaviors themselves are an attempt to fix or manipulate or change or avoid feelings, right? And so we learn to relate to ourselves and our own inner sensations through these extremes. And so, yes, the way we, re- we relate to food could be at either of those extremes, but neither of those are healthy. Now, the restriction is definitely glamorized in our culture, right? Look at her being so careful with food and look at her being or looking a certain way or whatever that's glamorized, but it's actually no less harmful than something that isn't quite as glamorized, which is maybe binging or overeating or emotional eating or that chaotic eating that you referenced on the other end of that spectrum. I would say in my experience, a lot of people just bounce between the two, right? Either I'm being super rigid or I'm not giving a flying flip about what I eat, right? And neither of those are super helpful. Yeah, neither of them are helpful. But one is glamorized to make it seem like it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. One is made out to be like it's a really bad thing when both of them, we got to be somewhere in the middle, which is also what we can do more in our relationships with our with ourselves and with other people as well. Healthy relationships are not going to be found at extremes. You could probably even speak to that better than I can, right? There's integration and there's trust and there's there's not the swinging back and forth. We're just finding finding a groove together, hopefully. That's going to be true for, you know, finding a groove with food, finding a groove with your body that isn't, you know, kind of like whiplash back and forth extremes, you know. Oh my gosh, I love this. Okay, so what are some common signs or indicators of an unhealthy relationship with food that might spill over into our relationships? So I would say that when we kind of assess someone's relationship with food, we have to look at intention. So someone might be engaging in a behavior that for another person would be harmful, but for them, it it actually adds to their life, right? And so when when we're looking at that, we have to have to look at intention. And so this, this takes a lot of just internal introspection, right? Like, how am I feeling about food? 
how do I feel in that relationship and how is it really affecting me? I think some common signs that can that can happen, I might have mentioned this just barely, but a lack of presence, I think is a big one. That's what I see. One of the things that happens when you heal your relationship with food is you're just able to be a lot more present because your mind isn't always spinning in, well, what did I just eat? And what do I how does that factor into what I'm going to eat next? And like all the mental gymnastics that we run through on a daily basis when we're kind of fighting food or feeling this tension with food, feeling like there's a right way to do food or a wrong way to do food. And we're constantly kind of playing that tub of war really zaps us out of the present moment, right? We're always thinking about what we just ate or thinking about what we're going to eat. You might be with someone, but in the back of your mind, kind of running through, well, how do I look while I'm talking to this person? Or, oh my gosh, I ate that thing. Like there's just a lot of mental chatter I find when people struggle in their relationship with food and their body that just completely zaps that presence. So they're not able to be present with themselves and with food and their experiences. And they're definitely not able to be present with other people. And to truly connect with someone else and be in relationship with someone else, we need to be able to be present and aware and feel like there's a lot of communication that happens that is not just through words, right? And so to really develop a meaningful, deep, rich connection and relationship with someone else, we need to be present. If I was only able to share one example, I think that's it. And I think that encapsulates a lot of what happens when someone is struggling in their relationship with food and what is possible for someone when they heal their relationship with food, that they're going to find that they're more present, that they have so much more mental space for the people in their lives. So presence for sure. I also have worked, you know, for the last 12 years with people who struggle with eating disorders or disordered eating. Every situation is unique and, you know, everyone's story is unique. I do feel comfortable saying that there's a few common characteristics or symptoms of someone who struggles in their relationship with food. And a big one is like a very low distress tolerance. I referenced just barely that emotion or disordered eating is an emotional disorder, right? And so anytime that we're feeling distressed, we tend to cope with disordered eating behaviors. And that could show up for a lot of different ways for a lot of different people, but a really low distress tolerance. Now, in any relationship, there's going to be discomfort, right? And you have to be able to manage that discomfort in healthy ways. And someone who struggles in their relationship with food is likely going to struggle with that in relationship. There's not going to be a lot of tolerance for discomfort, and they're going to want to avoid. They're going to want to disconnect. They're going to want to dissociate. And you really can't, as you know, build that relationship if that's happening. Those are two big things that I notice. I was just thinking while you were talking too, I love everything you're saying. When we're so concerned about what's going on with us, then we can't get to know the other person or we can't be aware of what their needs are or be in an understanding position for them because we're so worried about us. So it kind of blocks us in that way as well. It's kind of like when teenagers are like, they go to school and and they're worried about what they're wearing. No yeah. one gives a care about what you're wearing. Go make friends. You reach out to other people. You don't have to be so stuck on what you're wearing and worried about what, what you're wearing because no one else is actually even caring. No one else really cares what you're eating, right? Yeah. And, and if they do, then that's their problem. But 
when we're so worried about what we look like to other people, then I think that you're right. We're not present with them. And then we're not in relationship with them. We're still worried about us. Yeah. Stuck so. inside your own heads for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get in our own way. So how can someone's relationship with food, and well, I guess we've kind of talked about this, affect their social interactions and ability to connect with others, but we've kind of addressed that. Would you add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that I say this to my eating disorder clients all the time. It's really hard to have relationships with other people when you're in a relationship with your eating disorder. Now, your listeners may not relate to the word eating disorder, but again, I just want to remind us that we're on a spectrum here of disordered eating. And if there's any dysfunction or disordered eating habits happening, you're on that spectrum. And when you're in that relationship, it's really hard to have a relationship with someone else. Actually, even just a little bit of self-disclosure, I've struggled with an eating disorder myself, um, and it, it came after I was married. And my husband would say that to me quite a bit. It's really hard to have a relationship with you when you have this relationship with food, the the, the way that your relationship with food is. And mm-hmm. I think that people notice that. Like it's sometimes it could be hard to put your finger on if, unless if you don't have a diagnosed eating disorder. But I would be, imagine people in your life are like, it, I can't reach her. I just, I don't know how to reach her. I don't know how to connect with her. I don't know what she's thinking or feeling. There's not a lot of, vulnerability or connection. We're not coming together on things because you're devoting so much of your energy to this dysfunctional relationship, you know? Yeah, that is so powerful. And I've had, I actually have a client, a teen that said, I'm having a issue being friends with my best friend who I've kind of grown up with because she's constantly talking about how she needs to lose weight or how she shouldn't be eating this or she shouldn't be eating that. And even though I don't have that, it's making me think that I should be thinking about that because of how often she talks about it. And so she just said she kind of broke off the relationship, which I wish she could have talked to her about it before she just broke it off. But I see that too, where friends are thinking like, I don't want to hurt her feelings. So I just have to back off from the relationship because she's constantly focused on food or eating and how she looks. And then that triggers me. Yes, totally. And I think that this speaks to a larger issue, a collective societal issue that we've really normalized this body discontent and this kind of diet talk. And we tend to see it as normal or like, again, I think especially probably disproportionately women, but probably all of us, maybe even think that that's healthy. Like we need to be kind of overthinking that in order to take care of ourselves. When we put it in this context of relationships and we start looking at, okay, what does health and well-being actually mean? And what does it actually look like? And when this obsessiveness and preoccupation with how we look or how we eat is present, we, I, I think it actually detracts from our overall health and well-being, especially as it relates to our relationships. I guess this is a bit of a side note and a side tangent, but I think it's worth mentioning that when we think about health and wellness, most people will be like, oh, let me report my exercise habits and my sleep habits and how I eat. Let me report that to you so you know that I'm healthy, right? However, in health and wellness circles, the research that is being done in part is on something called social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, okay, at a fundamental level, 
what does health and wellness really mean and what contributes the most to it? So things like access to food, access to a place to move your body. We're going back to the fundamentals. Let's forget that you're out, how you're actually eating. Do you even just have access to food, right? We're getting down to like, what are the social determinants of health, right? Wow. Now, interestingly enough, especially for our conversation today, the social determinant of health that tops the list, meaning that is the thing that will have the biggest impact on your health and well-being, lower mortality rates, lower morbidity rates, essentially, is healthy, high-quality relationships. Number wow. one on the list. Isn't that incredible? So when we think about, but I'm exercising, I have this really rigid exercise routine and this, I have this immaculate diet but it's totally eroding my relationships, you're actually shooting yourself in the foot. Like you really literally are detracting from your overall health and well-being. you know? Yes, yes. And oh, I, Emily, I see that sometimes when people, they'll even think I don't look good enough to go out or to be with other people. And so they're isolating. And what they really need is that connection with other people, because that is what's the most important. And other people don't care. Yeah. They just want you to care about them. And so it's this wild goose chase of what are we even chasing after this perfection? Yeah. Wow. Got to get out of our own way a bit, right? So what are some, in your experience, what are some common challenges that individuals face in their relationship due to their relationship with their food? So I guess, I think we're talking about that essentially here, right? Obviously, that's a big hurdle. If I am preoccupied with how I look or how I eat or what fixing myself, then I'm not really able to develop relationships, right? Versus what if I was good enough just the way I was and I could engage in meaningful self-care and I could take care of myself because that is important but have that be something that adds to my relationships, to the relationship I have with myself, but also to the relationship I have with other people. And again, that's where this might be kind of introspective for any of your listeners to think, are my self-care routines, the things that I'm doing for my own self-care, are they adding to my life or taking away from it? Are they, am I pouring into myself so then I can pour into other people or is it just causing me a lot of, like you mentioned, isolation and fear and concern and maybe like personalization, like I'm making everything about me rather than really trying to establish self-care patterns that, you know, because that is important. Like I will, I will recognize that, right? Order to be able to give to other people, we need to be able to take care of ourselves. But can we do that in a way that doesn't take away from those relationships, right? Right. Okay, so Emily, what are what would you say are some tips or strategies that can provide help to people to develop a healthier relationship with food and then also improving their relationship with others as well? Yeah. Yeah, I love hands-on approaches, right? Like what do I do to help myself and be able to connect better with others? So so habitual. We've learned it from the time we're little, some of it, right? Yeah. And how do we change that relationship with our food? Oh, yeah. I actually want to highlight what you just said, which is a lot of us have not seen a healthy relationship with food modeled. 
So, you know, as we grow up, we kind of just adopt the kind of behaviors or mentalities that we see modeled for us. And so you're right. This could just be a developmental thing. Like I've developed into an unhealthy relationship with food, but that doesn't mean that we can't change the dynamic. Initially, as we recognize that, that something isn't working for us, let's change it. Right. So I guess, first of all, Going back to what we said about only knowing how to relate to food in extreme ways, I would say that's first and foremost, we need to learn how to relate to food outside of extremes. We need to create eating patterns that are consistent, adequate, and regular. Like I'm eating regular. Physiologically, we are designed to need food regularly and consistently throughout the day. And we need to really accept that that is how our brain and our body are going to function best. And we need to build external systems that help us do that. So I actually have a free download on my website. I can send you a link. You can include it in show notes if you'd like. Basically a download that's going to help you create a flexible structure with food. So it outlines the pattern of eating that can help you be proactive and can anticipate your needs ahead of time to make sure that you are eating consistently, regularly, and adequately. Now, sometimes you can feel like you're swimming upstream with this, especially again in the nutrition culture we live in that kind of encourage, like kind of glamorizes skipping meals or fasting or, you know, restriction in general. Yeah. But again, insulin resistance in that intermittent fasting is the best for that. And you were going to knock that over, right? (laughs) So what's kind of hard about knocking that over is there actually some fairly compelling research. So if there's any any listeners, I have to be careful about how I talk about this because there actually is some fairly, fairly compelling research talking about fasting and insulin resistance. Yeah. Ever, I think there's a lot of nuance there. We're not lab rats. We're living, breathing human beings with lived experiences and tendencies. And I would say that fasting is risky. It doesn't come without side effects. I think there are a lot of ways of managing insulin resistance and blood sugar levels that don't come with those same risks of fasting, especially women and the effect on hormones and possibly propensity towards disordered eating. So it's a nuanced conversation for sure. Okay. Okay. I think anyone is better off, especially for blood sugar levels and blood sugar regulation, establishing rhythmic eating because our bodies are rhythmic. Like you think about it, blood sugars are rhythmic, digestion is rhythmic, sleep is rhythmic, hormones are rhythmic. We cycle around the year in rhythmic ways. Like we are just really rhythmic creatures. I'm so confident that anyone who creates rhythmic, predictable patterns with food will find that all of those things function better for them. Better blood sugar, better hormone balance, better sleep those things will be a better balance when eating isn't haphazard and all over the place and I'm doing this or I'm doing that, but they can find a groove with it in the middle. Oh, I love that. Yes. Sometimes when one thing in our life is a little chaotic, it creates chaos in all of our, in a lot of aspects. So you're saying if we can create a rhythm with our eating, it'll create, help us keep that rhythm with all of the other aspects of our health. Totally. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of confidence that can come from that. Confidence from just good self-care. I think good self-care creates confidence and actually adds to relationships. 
but also confidence that look at me getting stuff done, feeling like I have direction, feeling like I have a plan for the day. I will say when you struggle with food and you wake up with no plan for how that day is going to go with food, you're only setting yourself up for a lot of chaotic behaviors that do not build confidence and don't make you feel very good about yourself. So having a plan for food, for how the food is going to go, but in a flexible way that isn't rigid, which is why I call it a flexible structure, because you can have both. You can have predictability and freedom. You can feel nourished and satisfied. Like we tend to think we have to choose one or the other, and that's why we're at these extremes, but we want to bring them together. We want to get the best of both worlds. We want to have flexibility, but also have some structure and predictability, and they can coexist. So that download is going to help them help any listener kind of just walk through a typical day and put together a flexible structure. It does take a lot of intentional work and effort, but self-care does. And again, this is the kind of self-care that can add to our lives, that can make us feel more effective in our lives, that can help foster healthy relationships. Like we want to focus on those kinds of self-care things. And I would say that this is something that would be well worth your time. Oh man, go get that download. That sounds amazing. And you yeah. said it's free? Oh yeah, yeah. It's oh. where I start with any client. Now I won't say it's all the help someone might need if they have you know, a dysfunctional relationship with food, but it's absolutely 100% the best place to start. So start there, see where you wow. get, see what you need from there. Yeah. I love this. I, you know, when I heard you on Jeff Stewart's podcast, you know, he talks about, more sexual dysfunction. And yeah, it's just interesting how when we don't have a plan, when we don't have a rhythm, our brains create a lot of chaos around it. You know, I just think that whatever your, it might be disordered eating or it might be disordered something else to, that's why food is such a good teacher this way to help us create plans and to be intentional. And I love what you said about being an intentional about what you're eating, mm-hmm. eating a plan, but have it be flexible. It's okay if we're not like right on. Yeah, I have a son who's an athlete, collegiate athlete, and he can be so rigid. And then if it, if it does not exactly, then, well, I'm throwing it out the window and we don't want that. Yeah. So Emily, how can- I have a couple other tips. Do you want- Yeah, let's go with those other tips. Yeah, so a couple other tips. The second one would be to connect with your body. Now, I know this is a really big ask, But hopefully just in terms of our discussion today, it's become apparent how necessary it is to have a healthy relationship with food. We fight food because we fight our bodies. And so we want to connect with our bodies. And I would say that the probably one of the best resources for this as it relates to food is the book Intuitive Eating by Evelyn Tribbley and Elise Resch. I can send a a link to that as well. There's both a, a book and a workbook. Both are great. And I would definitely encourage picking those up and starting to, to kind of go through those. But connecting back to our body is something that's going to be really pivotal in your relationship with food. And honestly, I would say in your relationship with yourself and your relationship with other people. I think our bodies are really wise. They can, they can discern a lot. They are, it's where a lot of our wisdom is found. It's, it's our brain and our body works together so interconnectedly that when we're making decisions, when we're taking care of ourselves, our body needs to be on board. And so we need to be able to connect back and know what it feels like to be inside of our bodies. That actually brings me to my third tip, which is to work on body image. Because when we are connected to our body, meaning like we're actually embodied, we are actually inside of our bodies, experiencing life from the inside out. 
as opposed to self-objectification, which is like watching myself walk around all day, living my life and like kind of monitoring how I look while I'm doing it. It's a really different experience, really different dynamic, right? So connecting with your body from a food perspective and like an embodiment standpoint might look like I'm going to be less distracted while I eat. I, whenever possible, I know some of us are busy. Some of us have to multitask here and there, but if you're less distracted while you eat and you're actually sitting and eating the food and noticing how it tastes and smells and looks and feels and what the temperature is and the texture, and if you even like it, or if you don't like it, being more connected to your body, you're going to have a lot more confidence in meeting your needs with food. You're going to know what your body's communicating to you. Like it wants more or it's satisfied and it's done. And now it's ready. You're ready to move on. When you're disconnected while you're eating, you don't have any chance of actually having that feedback that is actually where we're going to get a lot of confidence in taking care of ourselves with food. And so connecting with our body. Now, someone who is disconnected from their body, that might take a lot of practice, especially someone who's used to a lot of judgments around food. They might find their mind wandering to the judgments and the fear and the, well, what am I going to eat later? And how does this balance with what I ate before? And what if this turns into a binge or whatever kind of fears or worries are coming up because of their current relationship with food? That could just be a cue to come back inside their body. Oh, look at my mind wandering, bring it back inside my body. Again, connecting with the food. How does it look? How does it taste? What am I noticing about this eating experience is using my senses and actually feeling it inside of my body. That connection is going to be big. I will say that from a body image perspective, it's one of the best things that we can do, given that body image work isn't trying to work to think you're, you look great. I think that's the, the misconception that positive body image is I'm just walking around all day thinking I look awesome. When in reality, positive body image is I'm relating to my body in positive ways in how I talk about it and how I think about it and how I care for it and I'm connected to it and I'm noticing what it needs and I'm taking care of it in a way that feels attuned and intuitive. And I promise that anyone will feel more positive in and about their body when they're actually living inside of it, having these experiences from the inside out and learning new ways of relating to their body that are a lot more positive than they currently might be. Wow. I love that. You know, I work with a lot of people that are coming out of the FLDS church too. And I'm just, my thoughts are spinning about how they wore, and some of them still do, but wear the prairie dresses that are covered. And when they take those off and wear kind of more typical clothes, they have to learn more of a connection to their body when they do that too. And then also they were relying on outside sources to tell them if they were good or if they were righteous or if, you know, they needed to repent or not repent when really they knew the whole time inside that they were, you know, if you just go inside. So this can relate to spirituality as well as eating and your, again, with your relationship with yourself and just being embodied. I love that. So that self-image doesn't have to mean that you think you look like a supermodel all the time. It just means you're aware of what your body is feeling. Is that right? Embodiment best said is that I take care of myself regardless of how I look. Like It's not even factoring into the decision-making process and how I care for myself, right? 
it's not dependent. And, and that's what we often are doing or what we learn to do is that self-care is dependent on how I look. How I look determines how I take care of myself. And we're saying, no, it's the opposite. That's a self-objectification, right? The opposite is I'm actually inside of my body and noticing how it feels and noticing what feels good to it and what it needs. And I'm making decisions based off of that actually has nothing to do with appearance. There's a really great book that I would offer for this tip, which is More Than a Body. Maybe you've read it by Lindsay and Lexi Kite. They do a really, really good job of kind of unpacking what positive body image really is. Again, because a lot of times what we say to people when they're struggling with body image, but you're beautiful, just believe you're beautiful. And that's actually more harm, does more harm than good because it keeps us stuck in this, but I need to be beautiful. In order to be okay, in order to have a good body image, in order to be at home in my body, I need to be beautiful. So we keep this standard of if if that's what we're really here to, is that really what we're here to do? No, right? We're not here to be beautiful. And so it keeps us stuck. I would say, again, particularly as women, keeps us really stuck in, okay, I'm beautiful and that's what I need to be. And that's not the case at all. So More Than a Body does a really good job of doing exactly that getting us away from self-objectification and more towards embodiment and actually allowing ourselves to thrive, to be the person that will make us happiest and, and be happiest in relationship with other people because it's not so dependent on how we look. So body image work is a lot different than people tend to think of body image work being. You can wear a bikini, but it's not about wearing a bikini. Instead of, you know, like the liberation of look at me where it's not really about that. It's about how does the relationship with yourself actually feel to you? Do you feel at home in your body, no matter what you're wearing? Do you feel at home in your body, no matter what people think about it? The actual appearance matters very little. I could say so much about this. I love talking about body image, but hopefully that oh, gives yeah, that overview. Oh, interesting. Well, and my mind is spinning to people that get in accidents or that are born with you know, some kind, I knew a lady whose eye was up here and then down here. And yeah, she has a very good body image of herself. And she doesn't have to be the typical beauty queen, you know? So there's that. And then, oh, what was the other thought that came to my mind? I love talking about this too. You're right. Like we got to take care of our bodies, not so that we will be beautiful or not to keep ourselves beautiful, but just because we want to take care of our bodies. Yeah. Because we have a healthy relationship with ourselves and we have that self-respect, we have that self-efficacy, we have what we think about ourselves matters more than anything else, right? That's first priority. It's an interesting topic to talk about, but it's also so fundamental to anything else we do in life. When we don't feel at home in our bodies, we are not all that effective in our lives. We just need to have a better relationship with our bodies. And the culture we live in makes that really, really hard. So when I say body image work, I mean work. It is a lot of work. It does take a lot of intentional work. But just like any relationship, right? It's going to take positive intention. It's going to take conscious effort. It's going to take some trust and patience and all those things. It's just, it's so important. There's actually coming to mind a body image workbook that I could send you a link to as well. And I like it because the first part of it does a really good job. It's like an assessment, a body image assessment. And what I find over and over again with clients is that when they take that assessment, they realize just how deeply negative body image is affecting 
so many areas of their life. I think on some level, all of us kind of could guess, oh, that might be holding me back. Look at me isolating, not going out. On some level, we might know just how much negative body image impacts us. And then you do this assessment, they take it to a whole new level. And that's uncomfortable awareness. It's really uncomfortable awareness for people, but essential awareness to be motivated to do something about it, to see how pervasive negative body image is and just how it's disrupting so many other areas of your life that could be richer and more meaningful if it weren't for negative body image. I want everyone here listening to take that assessment. Is it free? Can you just get on and take well, it? It's in the workbook. So it's in the workbook. I think the name is Dr. Cash is the author. So it's just the first part of that workbook. So oh. send it to you, the workbook link. Oh my gosh. I love it. I know I often work with teenagers who have body image stuff and I'll say, okay, let's do some thought work around it. I want you to describe yourself without telling me how you look, without telling me your education, and without telling me your accomplishments. Because they want to say, well, I'm, you know, 5'10 and blonde and have freckles and I got this award or this award. That's actually not who we are. Those will describe our outer part of us, but who we are on the inside is what we need to know and have a relationship with, right? Yeah. Okay. So here we are coming up on the holidays where we have gatherings and food plays, food can play just a significant role, especially if we have a relationship, a complicated relationship with food. So what would be some tips to get through that? I definitely want to validate how difficult the holidays can be when you struggle with food especially like food, ubiquitous holidays, and usually they all are, but like Thanksgiving, that's, it's kind of centered around food. And obviously a lot of traditions throughout the holiday season can be Halloween candy. So when you struggle with food, holidays can be really tricky. Definitely want to validate that. Just like I mentioned that when you struggle with food, starting the day without a plan isn't going to be super helpful to you. The same goes for any holiday event or just the holidays in general. You, do, you need to have a plan. You need to know what it's going to look like. One of the ways that I like to do this with clients is have them visualize how they would want the event to go. How would that feel good to them? And there's a couple of things that happen with that question. One, requires them to connect with themselves and their values and what they want for themselves. So again, connecting back to themselves rather than the right way to do something, which is very external, Right. I should do it this way, or this is how it should be done, or this is how my mom does it, or how my sister does it, or my friend does it. It's how do I want this to go? And so it's a really introspective question that can kind of hit on a lot of different levels of therapeutic, (laughs) being therapeutic on a lot of different levels, right? Because it helps to connect back to yourself. So think about that. Visualize how you'd want it to go and then make a plan accordingly. What would help you execute that plan? So maybe... You're thinking about, oh gosh, trick-or-treating's around the corner and I'm going to have this big bowl of candy at my house that I'm handing out to trick-or-treaters. And I love having, I, I love Halloween candy. It's, it's super yummy. Wow. Maybe in years past, you haven't bought the kind of candy that you like as in an attempt to make sure you don't eat any of it, right? And then maybe there's other Halloween's past where you've bought all the types that you do and then binged on it. And so again, you're only relating to it in really extreme ways. I've either restricted it or I've been really chaotic with it. Okay, so the question is, is, well, what would feel like 
reasonable to me, what would feel normal to me, how would I want to be with Halloween candy if I could choose, like just wave my magic wand and say, this is how I'd want to behave. And then they say, well, I'd, I'd like to have dinner. And then as I'm handing out candy, maybe choose a few of my favorites and really savor them and notice when I've had enough and move on. Okay, well, what will help you execute that? Having a plan for dinner, setting aside your favorites, really allowing yourself to mindfully eat those candies, noticing how they taste, really savoring them, enjoying them, like allowing that enjoyment and that pleasure, making room for it. So anyway, just having a plan for how you would want it to go. Along with that, having a support system, like maybe someone that you have help you if possible, if that feels safe and appropriate. So at communicating that plan to a loved one and saying, I really want to be held accountable to this plan because it's important to me. I want to practice something different. I want something different for myself and I know I need to practice it differently. So maybe someone could help you execute that plan. I, I think that's a maybe my biggest tip. I do think having a lot of patience and self-compassion for yourself as you practice is a really good tip too. And maybe having some boundaries with people or situations that make food or just the holidays in general trickier, especially as you practice something different. Yeah, trying anything different will, number one, help us to feel a little discomfort. And there's a lot of unknowns. Maybe we don't know quite how we'll feel or quite how we'll deal with it. And so sometimes doing it the first time is can be really tricky. But I love that. I, it sounds like just a lot of our life can be simplified by having a plan. Really intentional with first thinking about what we want and then how we're going to implement it and then following through and then, you know, having grace for ourselves when we're not perfect at it. Yeah. And then being able to reflect without shame, like what went well, what didn't go so well, what would I want to go differently next time? I use this analogy a lot with clients is you're just, you're playing darts and you're just continually aiming for the middle. You're trying not to hit at the extremes. You're just aiming for the middle and you're going to stumble and it's going to be a practice. You're not going to nail it every time. So ideally we're open to learning. We're open to learning from our experiences that are going to give us a lot of really good data about what went well and what didn't sit so well for me. What did I not like? What felt icky about that? And if we can reflect and say, this is what I'd want to go differently later, that's actually how intuitive eating skills are born. I think a lot of times when we talk about intuitive eating, we think we just magically get to this place where heaven's part and angels sing and we know exactly what to do. And that's intuition. When in reality, you're building intuition experience by experience. You're gathering data. You're filing that away. Oh, and that I know what works or I know what didn't work this time. And I'm just continually learning and filing it away until eventually it becomes a lot more second nature to encounter an experience, particularly with food in this case or this context, like I encounter this experience with food and I just know what to do because I paid attention to my eating experiences. I've been willing to learn from them. I've been willing to be honest with myself about what I like and what I don't like. And, and in that way, I've been able to show up and support myself and learn what I need to learn to be able to be more intuitive, you know? Oh my gosh. That's it. I play that matching game with my little, my, my little girl and you put the cards all down and half of the game is just paying attention to get the right match. And so that's kind of what we're talking about. We're just paying attention until we get that match. And then sometimes we might've been paying attention, but gall, we yeah. still missed the card or probably in my case, my little girl switches it. So 
that's okay. <laughs> you know, we, we can still just keep on trying. So I love that. Have you observed any specific trends or patterns in how people's relationship with food affects their romantic partnerships? Yeah, you know, I think there's probably a lot of different dynamics that could play out here. I guess the one that predominantly comes to mind is just how much body image might play into a romantic relationship. A lot of times I would describe to clients the difference between an immature and a mature relationship with your body. That's not meant to be like an insult, but I think most of us actually start out in a pretty immature relationship with our body that's really dependent on just how it, like how we feel about it or how it looks versus really developing a more mature relationship where we're connected to it and we're actively doing positive things for our bodies. And as we mature in that relationship, we actually are better able to be in intimate relationships with other people, meaning it's just going to be more richer and more meaningful and more, more enjoyable if we have a mature and healthy relationship with ourselves, there's going to be more of us to give, right? We're not going to be holding things back because we have these insecurities. And so I see that a lot, a lot when it comes to body image. Mm -hmm. I guess this also brings up one other aspect that I see play out a bit that I guess would be worth mentioning for anyone listening, because I think it does impact someone someone's ability to make peace with their body and, and with food is that, you know, bodies change. That's what they do. We don't come in this world as we go out. Our bodies change. And the more we accept that reality about bodies, the less suffering in body image we have. So bodies change. They're going to change a lot throughout our lives. And they're definitely going to change a lot throughout a marriage or partnership. I find that there's a lot of disproportionate attention on the woman's body in a romantic relationship, a sexual relationship in particular, right? So there's these two people in this relationship, but everyone's focused on the woman's body, right? And so there's a lot of expectations around what it should look like or how it should function or whatever. And if, if a woman in that relationship does not have a positive relationship with her body, it's not going to be a really healthy dynamic, right? Meaning that we as women need to be able to kind of have our own back. We need to be able to feel confident in our bodies. And as the owner of our body, the one that gets to decide how it gets taken care of and the one that gets to decide, you know, what kind of energy we give to that and all those different dynamics. But one thing that I see happen is someone that's healing their relationship with food and their body, they, their body might change. They might gain weight as they're less rigid with food, for example. They might gain weight. And if there's a lot of negative feedback from a partner because of that, it really throws a wrench in things. It makes it really impossible for that person to really grow in their relationship with their body and with themselves. And then we're just back to objectification then we're not in embodiment. We're not, we're not free to be at home in our bodies and then to really be able to give that to someone else. That's a really like unsafe relationship for a body. So I guess that's what I would touch on there. I was going to say, and I, this probably goes along with it, but I love how you said we have to have our own back and because our bodies change and we can accept that. But sometimes I see women saying, oh, my husband thinks I need to lose weight or gain weight in some cases, right? And so they're all offended that their husband thinks that. But if they didn't think that about themselves, 
then they don't need to be offended. They can be like, well, you're crazy because bodies change, you weirdo. I don't have my 20-year-old body. Or yeah, I had 10 years where I was having kids. So my body does look different now than it did before. But if you also think what he thinks, then you're going to be more offended. We just need to be aware like, oh, do I actually agree with him? If he says, oh, you've gained some weight, then I always do this. Is that true? Yes, I have gained weight. You're right. We can disagree with it. That was a neutral statement. It doesn't need to mean negative or positive. It can be neutral. And then if it's, I mean, obviously, if it's really negative, that can be verbal abuse, you know, from your spouse or emotional abuse. But if he's just making, he or she, it could go either way, but it's typically, if he's just making a comment, but you don't have your own backs and you can get uber offended when it might have just meant to be an observation. So I think your relationship with your body is the most important and what other people think, even your spouse won't have to get to you so much if you have it, if you have that relationship with your body. Would you agree with me? <laughs> Completely. The things that are triggering in these relationships are triggering because they open up the wound in ourselves, right? We already are thinking that. We already are feeling that. And again, that just kind of goes back to where are you at in your own relationship with your body? That's what's most important. What you think has to take priority over anything else, because that's the only way that you'll able, you're going to be able to feel at peace, right? Yeah. Have the peace that you need in your body. So I like that. I like that recognition that if, if it's triggering to you, that just means some work that you need to do exactly. on your relationship, not on your body. <laughs> Yes. Oh, that's such a good clarification there. Your relationship, not necessarily on your body. Right. So do you have any success stories or examples of people who have transformed their relationship with food and experienced really positive relationships with others? Literally every client I've ever worked with. Okay, Candy, I mean, I know that sounds like so dramatic to say, but it never ceases to amaze me. Never. The fact that over and over and over and over and over again, I see healing your relationship with food and your body having the most dramatic ripple effect on every area of your life. And so I do hear this a lot from clients, like even just this week or last week, working with a client with an eating disorder, my husband's noticed I'm just so much more less irritable and I don't complain as much. And she's like, I didn't, I didn't really think about it, but he's like really noticed it, right? Wow. So that's like just one one example of probably a lot that I could say. It's most the recent example, but don't underestimate the impact that having a healthy relationship with food and yourself will have on your relationships. I see it over and over again. And do you have any resources or specific tools? You you're going to give us a few things, and we'll put it in the notes. But someone's relationship with food. So yeah, I will send the download for a flexible structure, intuitive eating book and workbook, more than a body. And then the body image workbook is what it's called. The, the body image workbook is actually what it's called. And those are going to be great places to start. They're going to create a lot of awareness. They're going to give you a lot of action things to work on and then see where you get. It's quite possible you may need individual support around food if you're really struggling from like a dietitian maybe therapists too, you know, you may need a little bit more individualized support, but those really cover the basis when it comes to what it means to be in relationship with food in your body. 
I guess a couple other things I'd mention is really watch your social media. We see this like studies show a very strong correlation between minutes spent on social media and body dissatisfaction, meaning the more minutes you spend on social media, higher body dissatisfaction is. And body dissatisfaction is the biggest predictor of disordered eating. Like we said, you fight food because you fight your body, right? So when you're on social media for an extended period of time, you might notice how much more dissatisfied you feel with your body. And I think that discomfort can definitely transfer to like, I just feel discomfort in my life. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. You probably have to experience it to know what I mean. But if you do experience it, you know what I mean, right? When you feel that discomfort in your body of that discontent, you feel discontent in your life. And you can start thinking that things in your life need to be fixed when you just need to get off social media, maybe, right? So I would say... Watch your social media use in general, like the amount of time you're on it in general, but also notice the the people you're following and Uh, how they make you feel about yourself. That doesn't need to mean anything about that person. You know, that person could be really, have really good intentions, but he or she is just not for you. So unfollow or mute or whatever you need to do to protect yourself and to protect that energy. And then there's a lot of really great resources on social media for body positivity and a healthy relationship with food. And that might be good to seek out a lot of dietitians in the intuitive eating and disordered eating space that are going to be sharing a lot of things about how to build a healthy relationship with food and, and also about body image and body image work. Therapists, dietitians, clinicians in general on social media that are are regularly sharing that content that could put your your mind in the right headspace on a day-to-day basis and kind of recommit you to that that intention and that goal of creating a healthier relationship with food in your body. So watch your social media. Yes, watch your social media. I mean, there's an energy, there's words that get put, there's images. And so we just really have to watch what we put in our brains and be intentional about it. So if we want a certain result, then we need, and maybe that's body positivity, then yes, let's move toward body, say in your phone, body positivity. <laughs> and and it, that'll be your answer. All of it, yep. You'll get, you'll get all the things. Right. I also, I might do a whole episode on this, but sometimes we consume more than we produce. Mm. And the idea yeah. that, I, I like to do this with my kids, you consumed, this would be shameful for me, but two hours of Minecraft or YouTube or whatever they're watching, right? Okay, now I want you to go produce something, be it homework, reading a book, exercise, making something, being creative, go produce something for that same amount of time so that you can be an equal consumer to your producer. And actually what I would I would think is it's better to be more of a producer than consumer. So just ask yourself too, am I consuming more than I'm producing? Because I could be writing out my plan for this week of my meals. So I have a protocol that is not too rigid, but I can follow. And that would be producing something as opposed to just consuming images and, you know, negative ideas about what a body should be like, where I could be producing something that would be positive for me. So I like that concept. Okay. So as a registered dietitian, How do you approach counseling or supporting individuals who seek help when they are struggling with, you know, their food and their relationships that are influenced by it? So I I think in a lot of ways, what we need to do when we struggle with food and with with our bodies, we just need a stronger voice for ourselves. 
right? We need to know better who we are and what we like, what we don't like. I think a lot of the insecurity we feel comes from just not really knowing what we want or what's important to us. So a lot of what I do is aimed at, especially when it comes to eating disorder work, is making the person louder than the eating disorder, making the person themselves louder than the disordered eating, right? Now, from like a logistic perspective, that does include a flexible structure, first and foremost, right? We start there. We start behaving differently around food, practicing different behaviors around food. I actually think in a lot of ways, we could think all we want about it when in reality, actually doing it differently is what teaches our brain to do it differently, think differently. We got to act that way and our brain will catch up. Sometimes we're just like so in our head thinking about all the ways that we're going to fix our problems. And sometimes we just got to do it and then let our brain catch up and not worry about it so much anymore, right? So a lot of action-based things, right? Building a flexible structure, having specific body image goals, like what are you going to work on? You know, so a lot of it, it's logistic. But if I could say in terms of relationships, if if that's the question, right? Like in terms ah. of relationships, how would I work with someone? And it's really first and foremost to change the relationship they have with themselves by just knowing who they are better, right? Oh. And again, food is a great teacher that way. When we slow down and we think about what do I like? What kind of combinations feel good to me? What would I want to plan to have this week because I like it and it's pleasurable and also makes my body feel good? Food is a really great teacher at allowing you to have preferences, allowing you to have boundaries, allowing you to know what you like and what you don't like, and just coming to know yourself. Kind of a journey of self-discovery. And I know that probably sounds so dramatic coming from a registered dietitian, but just, I think we're just really complex human beings and that's a lot of how we show up with food. It's, it's just like I said, how you food, do food is how you do life. Right. So. I love that. I'm working with my, one of my daughters on being assertive and yeah. I'll, I'll say, well, what do you feel like? What does your, what does your body want to eat today? And it's, I don't know. I don't know. And I just think, man, food is such a good way to teach even assertiveness. It can be a, a good way to teach caring for oneself it, it just all around, like everything you've said today, it's, yes, our relationship with ourselves is so important. And food is one way that we can take really good care of ourselves, sure. but also learn how to not be rigid and not, you know, have too much all or nothing thinking and kind of also trust ourselves that we can follow a protocol and putting things into action before, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but just act. And that rewires our brain in and of itself. Anyway, there's so many good things you said today in this interview. I really appreciate you doing this, Emily. Yeah, it's been good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for coming. And we'll see if we can't do something about, you know, that food class that we did for parents who struggle with kids who are picky eaters. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Oh, good. And it was really helpful for people. So I think maybe we should collaborate on that. Emily, what is one book that you would say has been the most influential for you? Wow, that's a hard question. I read a lot of really great books and I could probably say a lot of things, but my mind goes to two. Can I choose two? Yes, you can choose two. Okay, so first was Renee Brown's The The Gift of Imperfection. When I say that changed my life, it was totally true. It came at right the right time. I was struggling with an eating disorder, very much perfectionistic tendencies, and it changed my life. So Gifts of Imperfection by Renee Brown. 
And also Aware by Dan Siegel. He talks about his specific meditation practice and it has, it's really, really technical. Like the book itself is really technical, but fascinating, super fascinating when it comes to like mindfulness and meditation and so many applicable things to food. So those are two of my favorites. Oh, I love that. Aware and Gifts of Imperfection. I will just, I know we're we're ending, but I just want to say too, before we end that mindfulness is one of the tools that one can really develop and get to know oneself and develop that relationship. It is probably one of the most essential things to being aware. And so I love that. He called his book Aware. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, it's good. It's a good one. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm sure this is going to be really helpful for everyone. And we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Stacey. Thank you for joining me today on You Might Relate. I hope this topic brought understanding and insight. And if you can relate to something in today's episode, subscribe and leave a review. I would love, love, love to hear your thoughts. Also, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at You Might Relate Podcast. And be sure to share this episode with your friends. The more understanding we create, the better we are as humans. You are in charge of your day, so go make it a good one. Catch you next time.